0: Today's episode includes descriptions of a burn victim's injuries from 9 11. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, I'm Sonia Thompson from Dalton, Georgia, and I'm a retired educator. I love listening to Compelled because I love true stories. And not only is the content on Compelled true, but it's life changing. When you hear these interviews and how God helped people in their darkest moments, it will strengthen your faith as well. Enjoy today's episode. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to COMPELLED, where we use gripping, immersive storytelling to celebrate the powerful ways God is transforming Christians around the world. Last week, we heard from Eric Hoven, who grew up in a Christian household and served faithfully in his family's Christian ministry, volunteered at church, and always knew the right answers. Yet, at the same time, he was harboring a secret double life of sexual addiction. But one night he came face to face with a shocking realization he was the product of christian culture and teaching but he was a total stranger to christ again you can hear that story in our previous episode with eric Ovid. today's story is a special encore episode remembering the 22nd anniversary of the september 11th terrorist attacks we originally released this story four years ago but it's still just as relevant today While that day was horrific and filled with tragedy, God's hand was still at work. Our guest today is Texas State Senator Brian Birdwell, who was at the Pentagon on 9-11 when American Airlines Flight 77 crashed just yards away from him, instantly engulfing his body in flames. Brian was faced with certain death, but also with complete peace in knowing that his faith was already placed in a savior. Brian's story is raw, true, and filled with miracles. So please gather around, lean in and join us for another compelling story from the kingdom of God. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. all the must not take yourself too seriously and six1 since that matters and. What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all new bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new bumble now. I've known of Brian's story for some time now and briefly met him several years ago. But in 2019, I finally got the chance to sit down and hear his story face to face. Just a heads up, you'll hear Brian give a description about where he was at the time of the plane crash. It was only yards away. We've created a helpful graphic that you can view at our website, compelledpodcast.com, which can help give you a better idea. Just search for this episode. With that said, here is Brian's story.
1: Been a believer since 1971 at 10 years of age. Uh, My brother and I, we lived in Stockton, California at the time. Had a wonderful uh, uh, stepfather in our life, uh, Patrick Reeves. Um, James Robison was uh, doing a series of uh, evangelistic crusades and and yeah. came through Stockton. We'd been, you know, growing up in a uh, Bible-believing home and uh, at uh, the Civic Center in Stockton, California in 1971, my brother and I both uh, recognized the need for the remission of sin. While we may not have used big words like remission, we recognized that we were in Fallen, sinful world, and we were part of that. And that the only way to reconcile to a, a holy God was uh, through the redemption that that Christ's sacrifice offered. Um, came to the Lord that way. Mel and I met um, in uh, uh, 1986, married in '87. Matthew came along in '89. Um, lived uh, a nice American dream, you know, middle class life. Uh, commissioned in the United States Army. You know, Mel and Matt have been with me around the world. Um, and uh, you know some of the challenges that come with. Uh, do you make a decision to leave? You know, leave the career, change careers. You know those types of things. That, uh, just because you you're living the Christian faith doesn't. You know, the Lord tells us that uh, uh, the Lord hated me before it hated you, and we yeah. still live in a fallen, sinful world. So there's the challenges that come with uh, with living in that fallen, sinful world. So it wasn't like life was perfect before 1971. But there were so many things to rejoice. Um, I got assigned. I did everything in my power to avoid uh, being assigned to the Pentagon. Uh, being a being a lieutenant colonel may sound like you know that's a high rank, but in the Pentagon, that's just a galley slave. Really? And oh yeah. And uh, uh, I actually had a slot uh, to go be the deputy uh, uh, the deputy director for logistics at West Point. That that got re. I won't bore you with listeners with what all happened, but it was kind of the Lord's. You know, like. No, this is where I want you. And my options to go elsewhere were dwindling fast. Um, but uh, but just as the Lord had put uh, my stepfather in my life, there's sometimes there's people that are put in your life for the difficulty of it, and there's other people that are modeling uh, the Lord. Yeah. And my first boss in the Pentagon was uh, Colonel Schombach, a great Christian believer. They live out in Colorado Springs now. We're still in touch. My general was General Robert Van Antwerp, just a great godly man that uh, I mean if, if you can't be Jesus Christ, he's on that list of five men in your life wow. that uh, um, good good person to model since we're not you know none of us can be the Lord yeah uh, but that kind of, of man.
0: On September 11th, 2001, Brian's day began just like any other day. He arrived at the Pentagon
1: early and settled in for a day's work ahead. The morning of September 11th, I was serving as a military aide to the deputy, Jan Minnig, who was our our deputy to General Van Antwerp. Um, Colonel Williams was my tag team military aide uh, for General Van. I was General Miss Minnig's aide. We had two secretaries. Cheryl was in the office, uh, and then Sandy, our uh, uh, staff actions control officer, was there. General or Colonel Williams took General Van, Miss Minnig, over to the Double Tree for the Garrison Commanders Conference that our staff director was hosting. And then Sandy and Cheryl and I settled in for what we expected to be a slow day. Cool. And Sandy gets a call from her daughter, Sam. At, uh, she lived up in New York City. Hey, mom, the World Trade Center been hit by a plane. And, and we did what you, Paul, and, and everybody else around this country were doing, whether it was, you know, East Coast already at work, West Coast waking up. Uh, You know, TV at work, radio in the car, whatever it may be. Um, We went into Miss Minnig's office uh, and I turned on the TV in there, Sandy and Cheryl watched. uh, You could see the North Tower, the one with the antenna mast, burning, huge gaping hole and uh, beautiful weather. Uh, The smoke's the only thing coming out of the building, the only thing in the sky.
0: And what did you think had happened?
1: Well, the, the newscasts are all saying, you know, what a tragic accident. And that's what you want to believe. But, you know, the, the, the departure and approach patterns into Newark, LaGuardia, or Kennedy, I mean, kind of like what happened in '09 with Captain Sullenberger. And if I've got a catastrophic failure, and so many of our pilots are, are former military folks, if I've got a catastrophic failure, I'm going to put that thing out in the Atlantic or in the Hudson like, you know, and so there was that little voice in the back of the mind going, you know, I hear what the media is saying, but this doesn't smell right. And that would be, that That suspicion would be confirmed very shortly when we watched flight 175. Everybody, you know, watching TVs, watches that plane crash on live TV at nearly 600 miles an hour. And that would confirm that this was not a normal day in our nation's life. Sandy Cheryl, and I knelt down and I, I just let a prayer that, you know, Lord, uh, we love our first responders, but it's gonna be you doing the bulk of the life saving today. Recognizing how constricted a, a city that New York is, the difficulty of maneuver in the streets of New York, and oh, by the way, it's the two largest office buildings. I mean, the, the first responders, the, the firemen certainly, the police officers, the the calamity here. Um, the Lord's divine hand was gonna save most of the lives that day. That's not a statement of, of value less value of our first responders it's a statement of the difference between human and sovereign creator yeah there's no thought that we were next um but uh, told sandy and cheryl i was going to step out go to the men's restroom uh, and i'd be back momentarily and those are the last words that i would speak to my two co-workers went up to the fourth quarter turned left went to the men's restroom which is next to the elevator shaft came out of the men's restroom. I'm seven or eight steps out, and I'm about to turn right to go back through where the plane makes impact. So I'm 15 to 20 yards straight line distance from where the nose of the aircraft uh, hits the building at 530 miles an hour. And it is by the Lord's grace, Paul, that I sit with you as the only survivor in the E-ring at the crash site.
0: In a few seconds, you'll hear Brian give a description about his location in the Pentagon during the crash. And to be clear, Brian literally walked through the same hallway on his way to the bathroom that the plane would crash through just moments later. If you haven't already, I'd encourage you to look at the graphic we've made on our website, compelledpodcast.com, for a
1: clearer understanding. The E-ring is the outermost ring in the Pentagon, so that is the outer ring that it receives the first penetration of the aircraft. The spokes that connect those rings are called the corridors. And so the aircraft crashes very near the immediate intersection of the fourth quarter in the E ring for the, as the listeners recall the video of the Pentagon crumbling, as you're looking at from the outside, looking at the Pentagon on the left side, it shears off cleanly and on the right side, the collapse point stays somewhat hinged and creates in the lower right-hand corner of the hole in the wall a, uh, a a debris pile in triangular shape on the lower right-hand side. My window, where my office was, was the fourth window on the second floor to the left of where it had sheared off cleanly. But the window that I was behind when I came out of the men's restroom is still on the second floor, the first Uh, While the window is blown out, the hole where the window is is still intact. It hasn't crumbled. It's burned. It won't crumble. But it is the first window that hasn't crumbled. That's the window I'm about five to seven yards behind. When I stepped out to go to the men's restroom, I walked through what would be the crash site and what would eventually crumble. This was not like one of um, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger's action adventure movies. Where you you know see the flame coming, you jump out of the way. You make a, you go through an immediate you know analytical thought process and say, this is bad. I got to get out of here. Now, in fact, in scripture, when it talks about you know the twinkling of an eye and the sound of the trumpet when the Lord returns. Um, as a kid growing up in Fort Worth, when Carswell Air Force Base used to be a big B fifty two base, and I'd spent you know almost all of my career in the heavy forces units, you know big tanks, big artillery, you know those kinds of things. I've been around a lot of loud things in my life, but nothing as loud as hearing the impact of that aircraft. I didn't hear the plane coming, but I mean, the right engine passes to the right of me. I don't know how far to the right I mean, not not very far, but as it's coming through the building, um, the plane is actually turning inside out the kinetic energy of 530 miles an hour um, and 80 tons of an aircraft and with uh, what's remaining in the in the tanks is a, a little over 3,000 gallons of jet fuel. Um, I am set ablaze and at the peril of my life in that twinkling of an eye. I'm not rendered unconscious. I am tossed around like a rag doll in, inside the hallway, and it's immediate light to dark. I am in a hallway fully aware of my surroundings and in charge of my faculties. In the next moment, I am set ablaze and struggling with what I know is a life-threatening injury.
0: Brian's body was
1: instantly set
0: on fire. He immediately began inhaling aerosolized jet fuel that was over 300 degrees Fahrenheit, and his lungs were instantly damaged. But that was the least
1: of his worries. Stop, drop, and roll in this circumstance is an irrelevant. There's no sprinkler system, nothing designed to put out uh, the, the ignition of that large of a fire in one single location in an office building. Um, there are three pains and emotions that I'll experience in those seconds and minutes that lasted an eternity emotionally. First is the physical pain of the burns. I was burned on 60% of my body with 40% being 3rd degree burns. And um, the second pain and emotion is the one that really defines terrorism. And that's the, the, the and, and I'm, I'm, I wanna say this with, with, with all humility, but with all intensity, the the experience of knowing that you're facing a life-threatening injury and you know you cannot escape the source of that injury, to go from one side of life, this side of life before death, you know, the Lord, as He knits us in our mother's womb, He creates every one of us with that zest for living and and the natural instinct and preservation of life. And in those moments, When you realize that you are facing that life threatening injury and there's no escaping it, I cross that threshold over that line that says, Okay, Lord, I got it. This is a horrible, terrible way to be called into eternity. And I didn't scream out, Jesus, save me, because the salvation of this, the spiritual salvation, that was already done. And I didn't scream out, save me from this calamity. It was, Jesus, I'm coming to see you. It was the recognition that I was past the point of trying to survive. But I'd reached the point of reconciling myself with what, what I knew was my death that day. And recognizing that in having given my life to the Lord in 1971, of where I would spend eternity, crying out to my Lord and Savior, I'm coming to see you. It was what the military never trains us to do. I quit, I surrendered, I collapsed to the floor, and I waited to die. And the third pain and emotion is the one that uh, deals with the permanency of death. As I lay there, I'd gone from the calamity and the horror of the struggle to survive to the peace and the quiet and the silence even though it wasn't silent in the building, but the silence of laying there, having reconciled myself, knowing that I am at this moment about to have that feeling of the soul departing the body and apart from the body joined with the Lord and be standing before my creator in eternity. And I thought about Mel and Matt that morning and how I had said goodbye to them. And had I, known that morning I was walking out to my death, um, I would have said goodbye with more rigor than the expectation that I'll see you this evening. Yeah. But I lay there, thought about it, that the next time I would see Matt and Mel would be an eternity. Brian knew
0: that he was going to die. But what he didn't know is that God still had other plans, which you'll hear about right after the break you love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy Compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Ten Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle. And I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free US shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M. compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical, cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcast's top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to The World and Everything in It. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. Welcome back to Compelled. Brian Birdwell has just described how American Airlines Flight 77 hit the Pentagon at 530 miles an hour, just a few yards away from Brian. He was blown to the other side of the hallway like a rag doll covered in jet fuel and instantly set ablaze. Brian knew that he was going to die and resigned himself to his fate. But what he didn't realize was that God still had other plans.
1: The, uh, there are a number of miracles that occur that allow me to be with you today. Um, I'll share just a, a, a couple with you. When the Pentagon was originally built, construction groundbreaking was September 11th, 1941. Wow. I kid you not. September 11th. September 11th, 1941 was when the Pentagon groundbreaking was. When the Pentagon was built, it didn't have a you know sprinkler system. It wasn't ADA compliant, so there was all kinds of remodeling going on. So I've got a sprinkler system in there. And when the plane makes penetration and it's and the planes turning inside out, dismembering the the 59 passengers and crew, not including the, that number does not include the, the terrorists with any honor. Uh, and it's also killing 125 of your fellow Americans inside the building. It penetrates three of the five rings. Well, it's, as it's doing that, it's breaking all those water pipes. The, the impact should have killed me, uh, the, being tossed across the, I mean, and we're not talking hallway like at school. We're talking, I mean, Pentagon's the world's largest office building, and I was thrown around like a rag doll from that explosion. Um, well, I'd collapsed under a functioning sprinkler head. I mean, it's still intact, and there was sufficient water pressure behind it to extinguish the flames that are consuming me. I can feel the, the you know, something liquid on my, my face. I open up my eyes, I'm laying on the, the, the floor, open up my eyes, and I can see in the distance. And it's like if you were a ship at sea, and you cannot see the bulb of the lighthouse, but you can see the reflection of the light off the surface of the water. Yeah. The smoke is filling up the, the ceiling of the corridor. Many of the lights are out. There are lights on in the distance that weren't damaged with the impact yeah. reflecting off the tile floor. The Lord's now given me directional control because I know which way I'm looking. Yeah, I use the wall that I've been blown up against to try to work my way down the hallway, and there's still fires burning around me. And I I use the wall that I've been blown up against as a third and fourth point of contact. So my feet are on the floor, my hands are up against the wall, and I'm shuffling. This is not a stagger. It's not a. It's not a walk. It's not a run. It's a sidestep. Because, look, part of the reason I I could never get to my feet is because of the the concussion and the vacuum, the damage done to my sense of balance is is shot. I mean, I, you know. Yeah. And so using, you know, stuff to to the the wall to to stand up, shuffle down somewhere between uh, the D and the C ring as I'm coming out of, you know, the smoke is thick in the ceiling, but I'm moving more toward the light. Uh, I can start to see the damage done to my body, and here's where things can get graphic. Hauled up, um, I am burnt to a crisp. Only the front of my shirt is is still intact because when I collapse to, and you know I'm face down, most of my you know fashionable army polyester pants are burned away. The socks above the leather. Uh, trim of my shoes at the ankle. Everything is burnt all the way up. I mean, there's portions of my pants that are melted to my knees. It was frankly a blessing, and it was so hot, it didn't have a chance to melt to me. It just immediately burned away. Um, There's portions in the groin that are still there. My leather belt is around my waist. Everything on the backside is gone. I've got a burn scar that runs across the top of my shoulders because as i'm laying face down everything on the back side of me is burning away Um, my name badge and or my name tag and my access badge are still connected to my shirt covered in my own scorched blood but they're shriveled up and melted Um, and there's chunks hanging off my arms i can already feel my face swelling closed my eyes you know took rock in the rocky movie it took you know 14, 15 rounds of being pummeled by Apollo Creed, but it took only seconds uh, in a, uh, in the, uh, inside the hallway. As I am staggering down the hallway, somewhere between the, uh, the C B-ring area, four men, Bill McKinnon, Roy Wallace, John Davies, and Chuck Knoblock. And Bill McKinnon and I had been classmates at uh, Command and General Staff College, but Bill doesn't recognize me. And in my exhaustion of having covered about uh, 20-30 yards in the condition I've described, totally indisposed, uh, scorched either the soot or the actual burning and charring of my flesh. Um, Roy Royce told me what a what a just a ghastly thing to watch me come out of that smoke. In that exhaustion of covering that that distance in that condition, as well as the relief of knowing I'm about to subordinate myself to my, my comrades in arms. I collapse in front of Roy. Roy's like, hey, we got one out here. Let's get him as quickly as we can. And this is not a place to, to wait for medical care to get to me. In fact, uh, the, as part of the renovation of the Pentagon, there are doors that are uh, across the hallways, across the corridors that can contain a fire the fire containment door has already been closed at between the A and the B ring. So had bill Roy, Chuck and John not come out into the, the corridor, I would have eventually gotten to the, and, and hope a fireman got to me. Otherwise I would have either died of my injuries or, wow. or died of smoke inhalation inside the hallway. Cause there's no way to, for anybody inside there to open it up even temporarily. Yeah. Once it's closed, you're locked in. Yeah. Um, I mean, Roy and, and all of them, you know, we've got one here. we got to move. This is, like I said, this is not a place to wait for medical care to get to me. There's fires burning 40, 50 yards away. I'm laying on the floor, face down. Uh, they uh, they roll me over. Touching me is agonizing. They each grab a limb and give that first exertion to pick me up, but I don't come with them. With the burn, it's like when you have a... a uh, paraffin treatment and you put your hand in the hot wax it's clear but then when you take it out eventually solidifies but the wax just comes right off with burns what's happened is is the the moisture in the body has been evaporated so when you grab somebody that's been burned what bill roy chuck and john did was just pull chunks of flesh off of me and i begin screaming at them to leave me alone
0: oh my goodness
1: and then as they're holding me on my side of my torso balancing me on the floor chuck puts his arms underneath my torso of course taking on the left side chunks as he does that so instead of grasping me what the four of them do when chuck puts his arms underneath my torso then he's gripping the hands of the other so the 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 four of them are shaking hands with each other with my body weight resting on it rather than them grasping me um i mean it's just absolutely agonized but they're carrying me they we go through a b-ring door the door that they came out um because remember the plane penetrates through the the e d and the c the b is left untouched except for the burning of the roof but um they take me into the through the b-ring door into an access way to take me to the a ring and i'll be taken to uh the intersection of the fifth and sixth quarter at the a ring the a ring is the innermost ring of the pentagon um and be given my first medical care from a, a great Air Force uh, flight surgeon named uh, John Baxter. He takes my shoes off and what's left of the sock underneath the leather because uh, the leather shoes were functionally you know, protecting my feet. Um, and that's the only place he can see a vein because um, I mean, that's how charred and wow. whether it's my own scorching or the soot, because I mean, I've got an inhalation injury. I mean, there's gunk coming out of my lungs. I mean, I'm breathing in there but I'm not breathing oxygen, I'm breathing the aerosolized jet fuel and so my lungs, I mean, I'm actually beginning the process of drowning on the inside because the lungs, you know, when you get a blister on the outside, you get that water that fills. Well, that's what's happening in your lungs. When your lungs blister, they begin to get that liquid in there. So I'm having trouble breathing slowly, but I'm in the process of drowning even without having been in water. Dr. Baxter puts the morphine in the right foot after he takes the shoes off. Uh, he and Colonel Davitt, one of the nurses that's with him, put an IV in the left foot to get fluids into me. A wonderful lady from the Navy, Natal Ogletree, uh, comes down to the right-hand side. She's got her Bible in her hands. And this is not a clean, casualty evacuation location. This was basically, let's just get people out of the danger area, set them down where we can that's far enough away. But we're right next to the staircase coming down from the fifth, fourth, and third floors. The building is, you know, emptying rapidly. There are people jumping over us. You know, I mean, we do chaos well in the military, and that's what's going on here. But um, Natalie will open her Bible. We'll say the Lord's Prayer together, and it's very difficult to, to speak. But we say the Lord's Prayer together, the 23rd Psalm. She'll read the 91st Psalm over me. I am trembling violently because i can't control um uh, i cannot control my uh, uh my arms my legs yeah um just the the uh i'm paced on a, a body board they put me on a i mean this the death inside the pentagon in the hallway there in the quarter just seemed to last forever but my medical care and evacuation out of the building seemed to go like you know the snap of a the fingers there's a an elongated golf cart kind of thing that acts as the ambulances inside the building, how it got to me. And, and I mean, I just, you know, it's the Lord's hand. I get taken out to to the North parking, eventually get put in the back of a Ford expedition and I'm taken to Georgetown. And here's one of the many miracles. uh, And I think it's the most, I mean, I've already described some, but I think it's the most salient. Georgetown University Hospital is not the inner city hospital of downtown D.C., but it's over at Georgetown University. You know, the French embassies across the street from the emergency room. You've got senators, you know, chief justices and, you know, associate justices on the courts. I mean, Georgetown is the high end neighborhood of what what is mostly inner city D.C., uh, I am the only eva- uh, casualty taken to Georgetown. In fact, the nurse in the back of the vehicle with me, uh, um, Jill Hyson, was on her two weeks of annual training at the Pentagon as an Air Force reservist. But she normally worked at Georgetown as a radiology uh, tech, and that's the only hospital she knows how to get to. So she's telling, as she's with me with my IV, that she's telling the driver how to get there. That—that's what really nearly killed me was the ride to Georgetown.
0: As they raced through the streets of D.C., Brian continued to narrowly cling to life. The entire city was in chaos, and with plane crashes in New York City and Washington, D.C., the entire country was scrambling, and no one was sure how many more planes might fall from the sky into densely packed cities. As they pulled into the hospital parking lot, Brian was still conscious and breathing, but he was far from safe. More on that right after the break. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school, and there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations, and their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12 month money back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you like your money back and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that. Because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compel, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they want to do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. The world tells young women to seek popularity, beauty, pleasure, or whatever will make them happy. Yet the more they chase after those worldly dreams, the emptier they become. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a special conference designed for mothers and daughters to encourage them that there is just one thing worth seeking after, Jesus Christ. The conference is called Seeking Christ and takes place at the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, September 20 and 21st. The conference is taught by Sarah Malley Hancock, the founder of Bright Lights Ministry, and includes skits, real life examples, studies for moms and daughters to do together, and bonus sessions by Ken Ham and Martin Isles from Answers in Genesis. Plus, you'll get to walk through the full-scale replica of Noah's Ark there at the Ark Encounter, which I've actually done and is incredible. Young women will be challenged to seek the Lord first in their lives, deepen their love for God's word, be rooted in their identity in Christ, gain vision for close family relationships, and shine their light brightly for the Lord. The primary focus is for young women ages 10 to 18 and their mothers, but of course women of all ages are welcome to come. Learn more at brightlightsministry.com. Again, that's brightlightsministry.com. Welcome back to Compelled. Brian had just arrived at the Georgetown Hospital, and his condition was dire. The ER was a level three trauma center, which normally isn't as ideal as a level one or level two.
1: However, God had already sent the right care team for Brian right there. We get to Georgetown. The attending physician is Dr. Michael Williams. Well, Dr. Williams had spent two years in a trauma fellowship, over at the Washington Hospital Center working under the direction of Drs. Marion Jordan and James Jang. Dr. Jordan was the director of the burn center. Dr. Jang is chief of research. So from the perspective of all the emergency rooms in the in greater D.C. area, both inside D.C. and in the, in the suburbs in Virginia and Maryland, I've got the third best burn doctor available to me, and that's seminal for, for several reasons, Paul. First, normally in a, in a normal run-of-the-mill day when you have an emergency you get into the emergency room. You, there's three things you do: you stabilize airway, breathing, and circulation. Once those are stabilized, you're evacuated to specialized care. But because aircraft are used as the weapon system that day, and you know, like the needle in the haystack, it's not saying here I am. Uh, when the air, when Flight 77 hits the Pentagon, Vice President Cheney, at uh, inside the White House Situation Room, will, will direct Centra- Transportation Secretary Manetta to shut down all airspace in the United States. That includes medevac helicopters. The only thing flying is military aircraft. Yeah. So I remain at Georgetown. Well, here's what's so so special. As the only casualty taken to Georgetown, not only do I have that entire emergency room's undivided attention, I've got a doctor that's had two years of working under the direction of Drs. Jordan and Jang, not just on other emergencies, but – on critical burns and the like, and he knows what he's got to do with me because wow. I'm not going anywhere. Wow. I am not going to be evacuated for, for about uh, from the time of the impact to the time I get to Georgetown. You're talking nine thirty-seven to somewhere between four and five o'clock in the afternoon. I get to Georgetown around eleven, um, or a little shy of eleven o'clock. So I'm in Georgetown five six hours. He begins to do the escharotomies, the debridements, the the very brutal things that have to be done for a burn survivor to live. The burn injury is not nearly as bad as the medical care uh, to to cause you to survive it. Wow. Dr. Williams will come to the left side of the bed and he'll look at me and my eyes are nearly closed. I'm just looking through the very thin uh, opening in the the eyes uh, from the swelling. And I can see in his eyes the gravity and the seriousness, he comes up to me and he says, Colonel Birdwell, we're going to do the best that we possibly can for you. And I know what he's telling me, because in the in in arriving in the emergency room, there was no, uh, you know, Dr. DeSimone's outside with a triage team, ready to triage casualties. I'm the first one arrives. DeSimone looks at me and says, I don't need to triage him, get him in, he's critical. And they'll stand out there and wait for people that won't come. I get inside, it's a battle drill, there's, there's voice commands and intensity, but no chaos. Dr. Williams tells me what I just told you he said. And so I told him I wanted to do two things, and, and breathing and speaking is, is difficult, very labored. first thing I asked to do was I wanted to take the wedding ring off of my finger, and then I wanted the hospital chaplain. Because what in, in, with a burn, whether it's a ring, a bracelet at the at the wrist, or a necklace at the at the chest area, if that's the part of the body burned, as the body swells, that jewelry becomes a tourniquet, and you can lose a limb. I mean, it. So you normally jewelry is cut off the burn survivor. But I didn't want the wedding ring destroyed because I had come to the, even though I'd been thinking about this on the drive over, Paul the. The Lord spared my life inside the building, but the question of life or death that day hadn't been answered yet. I'm getting emotional here and I... Um, Judith Rogers, one of the OBGYN nurses that had answered the all hands on deck call. With her gloved hand, she reaches for the ring and and you've got a picture. My hands look like five blackened hot dogs extending from a burnt steak called my palm. And gold melts somewhere between seven and 800 degrees, but the, the human body melts long before that. And as I have cooled, like that steak you take off the grill, as I've cooled, things have hardened. Judith reaches for the ring, gives it a slight tug. She degloves the, the finger, blood streaming out. I don't recall it hurting, and I don't think it was because of Dr. Baxter's morphine shot. But it's because I'm concentrating on the finality and the death that I'm dying and the dignity of it and making sure that i have the opportunity through the symbolism of that wedding ring to say goodbye to my wife and my son and judith takes the ring off and hands it to major collison and i told john i said give that to mel and tell them that i loved her and then the hospital chaplain chaplain cirillo comes to the right hand side and she just leads that prayer that it wasn't a prayer like in 71 when you know at the james robinson crusade but it was a prayer that that said, Lord, you know, you are the great physician. You've brought Brian here that if under the care and stewardship of some exceptional physicians with Dr. Williams, Brian survives, we'll salute that flag and we'll move out with that mission of survival. But if in your wisdom, you have brought Brian here to be quietly called into eternity under the care and compassion of his fellow Americans, we'll salute that flag too. It was recognizing whose picture is in the chain of command photos, above all else, of who's in charge of my life here and my eternal life in eternity. Mm-hmm. When that prayer was over with, I looked at Dr. Williams and said, let's get on with it, resting in the comfort of, of knowing where I would spend eternity. And I remember as vividly as I'm sitting here with you, Paul, right now, They put the mask over. I could feel them turn my head back to to do the intubation. And that's the first of of, of 39 trips to the operating room to be over a four year period, be put back together. There was still a long road ahead
0: for Brian, which included many life-saving surgeries and reconstructive operations, and
1: months and months of recovery in the hospital. From fingertip to armpit, my arms are completely grafted circumferentially around both arms. My eye sockets have been rebuilt. My ears are artificial cartilage with bone skin grafted over the neck, the face. Uh, the, th- the, the thumbs have been reconstructed. These are my original thumb bones and the, and the flesh around them. But the the burns to my hands had, had burned away the, the uh, webbing. And so Dr. Jordan had to go in, um, put uh, uh, basically make an incision, pull the thumb bone out, reconstruct the muscle, put a graft over it, and then stick a, a, a screw like a turnbuckle through the thumb into the index palm bone uh, and keep my thumb apart so that the graft would uh, eventually grow and cover the So I have something of an opposing thumb. Um, I've got artificial things in my my body, Integra, ActiCote, they're, you know, Transite, other things that help the body uh Except, I mean, it's my own flesh being grafted over me uh, later on. I'll have artificial things, cadaver skin, pig skin, used as a temporary covering. But where uh, grafts tend to not take, where there's bony areas, uh, and you've got to have something for the the blood flow to get to the skin. Yeah. Yeah. So the elbows, the fingers, the the jointed areas are the hardest to cover. And there's some things that help uh, help uh, uh, mitigate those uh, those challenges. Today,
0: Brian is able to enjoy a life that many said he never would. You know, Mel
1: lived her wedding vows magnificently. Um, I could only hope to do as well if the roles had been reversed. Um, our son, Matt, he's 30 now and married. Uh, we have a grandson, Elijah. And just this past Monday, um, uh, our granddaughter, uh, Lily, was born And on Labor Day, actually. She was induced on Labor Day. There, There's some Birdwell humor. Okay. Um And you know, the morning of September 11th at 9:37, I didn't think I'd see that. And I still hope the Lord gives me a whole lot more years to see, you know, Elijah and Lily married, and and uh, you know, Mel and I get to, you know, grow old, do some things, go see the country that we bled for. Yeah. Um, But if the Lord calls me sooner than that, if He does, then I know that when He does that, I won't want to, won't want to come back. You know, I want once you're in eternity, yeah, there's no turning back. The The back of the book that says 30-plus operations and countless physical therapy sessions later, Brian Birdwell's living proof that God doesn't waste our pain and that our greatest tragedy can also make us stronger. Our byline verse is 1 Peter 5.10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 1 Peter 5.10. Whether it's physical suffering, uh, marital, financial, uh, professional in in your job, and much of the suffering our nation's going through with, with what is clearly a spiritual and cultural battle of of good and evil. Um, only the Lord can fix the hearts of men. Yeah, I know
0: that you know nine eleven happened eighteen years ago, almost eighteen years ago, just a few days short of that right now. Why do you think God preserved your life?
1: Well, the, it, there are t- I'll answer the question this way. There are times people that survive, you know, call it survivor's guilt, and that's really not the right word. Uh, it's the survivor's charge um, to tell the story. Look, the, the greatest story is, is in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, why he took Cheryl and Sandy and left me is the calling he gave me to—, to Proclaim his name, proclaim his kingdom. Look, Paul, I'm as sinful for the Lord as everybody else is. Um, But Mel and I would be derelict in our duty of the story and, and grace that the Lord gave us if we didn't share it. And the gospel message is what our, our hurting nation needs to heal and a hurting world needs to hear. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. Praise God.
0: Awesome. Well, Senator Birdwell, I am just so grateful and, and thankful that you're willing to share your story. I know it's not a enjoyable activity, reliving some of those moments, but I also think it just points yeah. out the power and grace of God yeah. and how powerful absolutely. he is and just the redemptive nature of that too. Yeah, so th- absolutely. Th-
1: thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Paul. My treat.
0: As we remember the events of 9-11 and those who died, We should also remember that God was there in the midst of the tragedy and any future tragedy yet to come. It's interesting to note that Brian prayed earlier that morning with his co-workers when the Twin Towers were hit, acknowledging that even though first responders were on the ground, God was the one who would do the life-saving that day. But little did Brian know that moments later, he himself would be relying on God to save his own life. There are numerous miracles in Brian's journey which point to God's hand in his life, more than we could share even in this episode, but many of which are recorded in Brian's book, Refined by Fire. The book is out of print, but we actually have two very used and very loved copies that we're giving away this week. To enter the drawing, visit compelledpodcast.com, pull up this episode, and you'll see the entry form at the bottom of the page. Today, Brian is a Texas State Senator and has served his district for the last 13 years. You can learn more about Brian and his family at brianbirdwell.net. If you found Brian's story to be meaningful, can you take a second and share it with a friend? And if this is your first time tuning into a Compelled episode, then please listen to some of our other stories. They're all free to listen to and highlight how God is transforming lives and a few that you might find particularly meaningful include episode 42 with jim Payne. he was sent to the middle east as part of a navy seal team in 2005. during their deployment his team was divided in half and suffered devastating losses in the mountains of afghanistan and as jim grappled with crippling grief he clung to the one who offered any glimmer of sanity another great story is episode 57 with ramona churko For years, Ramona and her husband served in churches together. And on the outside, it looked like they had a picture-perfect marriage. But in reality, Ramona was carrying a dark secret. Her husband was emotionally and physically abusive, and Ramona had lost all hope. Until one day, she realized that the source of true hope had never left her at all. And finally, episode 21 with Joe Friedman, a devout Jew who had no Christian friends yet became intrigued by Jesus after reading about him in the Bible for the first time. Could this Jesus truly be his Messiah? I've left links to all three of those stories in the show notes for this episode, and you'll find all of those and more at compelledpodcast.com or by searching for Compelled in your favorite podcast app. This episode was edited by Zach Fowler and Will Jackson, and our associate producer is my beautiful wife, Sarah Hastings. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's regular episode with Jurgen and Sean Beck, whose individual journeys of faith were initially separated by an ocean. Yet God brought this couple together from opposite sides of the world to minister to those around them in a very unique way. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and we'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday. So we drove home with Annie while her birth mother was still in the hospital recuperating. And then I get a phone call from the attorney saying, I have a little bit of bad news to tell you. The mother just called me this morning and she told me that uh, she wouldn't sign the relinquishment papers. So she wanted the baby back. How do you react to that? One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th. And there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year. But we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com slash events. And I hope to see you there.